Before thee let my cry come near, O Lord, true to thy word, teach me before thee. We are thankful that you are able to join us today as Pastor Mark Robinette preaches another sermon at Foundation Church here in Mount Sterling, Ohio. If this message is an encouragement to you, and we pray that it will be, please consider taking the time to go to www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org and let us know. Thank you, and may the Lord richly bless you through His Word. Let my lips thy praise confess, yea, of thy word my tongue would sing, yea, Greetings, people of God, in the name above all names, the name of Jesus. You know, Jesus loves me. This I know. Why? For the Bible. Little ones to him belong. They are. But he is strong. You know, that's those are some pretty simple words from a little kid's song, but that's not a little kid truth. Amen? Amen? Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. Right? Little ones, that's us, that's you and me. To him belong. We're weak. And he is strong. Do you love God today? You know, David loved the Lord and he didn't care who knew about it. He didn't care what anybody thought about how he loved the Lord. And I think that's one of the things that God's Word gives us as an example for us to have an, a, a, an abandon, honestly, an abandon to what we really care about what people think about us when it comes to our devotion for God. Psalm 144, you can hear this echo from David as he lifts up his voice to the Lord, he sounds really, really excited. I don't, I don't think I could in any way match the emotion of David in Psalm 144. He said, Blessed be the Lord, my strength, which teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. My goodness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I trust who subdueth my people under me. Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him and the son of man that thou makest account of him? Man is like vanity. His days are as a shadow that passes away. Bow thy heads, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains and they shall smoke. Cast forth lightning and scatter them and shoot out thine arrows and destroy them. Send thine hand from above, rid me and deliver me out of the great waters from the hand of strange children, whose mouth speaks vanity and their right hand is the right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song unto thee, O God, upon the psaltery and upon an instrument of ten strings will I sing praises unto thee. 
It is he that giveth salvation unto kings, who delivereth David his servant from the hurtful sword. Rid me and deliver me from the hand of the strange children, whose mouth speaks vanity, and their right hand is the right hand of falsehood, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, and that our daughters may be as cornerstones polished after the similitude of a palace, that our garners may be full, affording all manner of store, that our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our streets, that our oxen may be strong to labor, that there be no breaking in or going out, and that there be no complaining in our streets. Happy is the people that is in such a case, yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. We are a happy people, amen? amen? And we should be. Let us pray. Oh, we thank you, Lord, that once again that you have called us into your house together as a people to worship you. We could be sitting at home alone. We could be resting in our beds. We could say, oh, we can do whatever we want today. No work pulling on us or anything. We could sit and do that and day after day we would find the difficulty and boredom that comes with self-centeredness Lord but Lord when we come to you and we come together as your people we put on our best clothes and we come into your house lifting up your name we are reminded that you loved us with an everlasting love Lord that you took us who were not a people and we have become your people your children you have forgiven our sins and cleansed us from our unrighteousness we come into your presence today wondering why why other than the grace and goodness of God why would we be invited to come here and Lord we come hungry knowing you will feed us and we come needing to be changed and be made fit for heaven in Christ's name we pray and all God's people said standing for just a little bit more I'm going to read to you my text from Psalm 18 I'm going to cover all of Psalm 18 today uh, I'm not going to preach verse through verse through 50 verses so don't worry about that but if I did you'd really have to hang out for a long time uh, I know I've been preaching a little bit longer than normal so I'll try to well I don't know what I'm going to do but I'm going to preach to you about love and strength okay love is everybody say love and strength this is a great psalm, folks. This is, a, this is worth spending a little bit of time on today, okay? So, my text for you, I'm just going to read uh, four verses here. Well, five verses here. Psalm 18, verses 31 through 35. For who is God? Save the Lord. And who is a rock? Save our God. It is God that girdeth me with strength and maketh my way perfect. He maketh my feet like hinds feet and he setteth me upon my high places. He teaches my hands to war so that the bow of steel is broken in my arms. Thou hast also given me the shield of thy salvation and the right hand hath holden me up and thy gentleness hath made me great. 
Let us pray. Oh Lord God, you are so very, very good to us. As we will hear, this is what David's heart cry was. I pray that it would be ours as well. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You know, oftentimes what God does to His prophets, to those who speak His Word, is He does in them what He's trying to teach the people through them. And so, if you remember the story of Hosea, God wanted the children of Israel to know what it was like that they had gone after other gods, and this was like uh, a woman who leaves her husband and goes after other men, and so he had the prophet Hosea uh, marry a harlot. And so as he suffered through the difficulties of those things, he was able to write about that. And God does this in his people. I believe that God made uh, the apostle Paul weak so that he could teach us about weakness. Amen? And I can tell you right now, I'm really, really feeling this today because this message today is about weakness. And so God has done a wonderful job of making me feel horribly weak this week. So, because I am. So I'm going to read to you the introduction to this psalm and talk to you a little bit about it. And we're going to jump right into the message of the entire psalm. Starting out in verse 1, there are these brackets, and it's almost the entire verse 1, but not even included in a lot of online Bibles, maybe not even included in your Bible, but it's inspired and it's right here, and so I'll read it. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord who spake unto the Lord the words of this song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, that's a pretty long introduction, wouldn't you say? In fact, it's such a long introduction. I'll get to that in a second. But this is another of the 73 Psalms ascribed to Israel's King David uh, with an inspired title that tells us so. A Psalm of David. Right? To the chief musician, a psalm of David, right? It says this over and over. Seventy-three times it says this, but it's worth noting that there are two more psalms that David wrote that it doesn't tell us that he wrote in the book of Psalms. So how do we know? Well, we know because we have the New Testament. That's how we know. And in the New Testament, uh, Psalm 2 and Psalm 95 were also written by David. They're referred to respectively in Acts chapter 4 and in Hebrews chapter 4. And they specifically say the words, these are the words of David. So that brings David's total of known written songs in the book of Psalms up to 75. And that's exactly half of the 150 Psalms. It's kind of amazing that it's a perfect half of all of the Psalms. I think part of that is, and I really think the grandeur of the life of David is that David is a weak man. He's the greatest king of Israel. When you say king of Israel, even though Solomon was the wisest, you really don't even think of him. There's really not even a second. 
There's a first, a second, and a third when you come to thinking of the strength of Israel and the power of Israel. And it's David. That's all you really ever think of. And he's the weakest. For those researchers among us, this week I found myself digging deeper into these psalm titles. These descriptions given to us in the inspired text before the prayer begins. And I learned that there are those who believe that the psalm titles are actually on the wrong psalm. So this has really got me kind of messed up because I had really never heard anybody make this uh, assertion before. But I can tell you right now that the title that's on this psalm goes on this psalm. I don't care what anybody says. It absolutely does. And it does because everything that in it is exactly what's described supposed to be in it verbatim, okay? And we'll get into that in a second. So here in Psalm 18, the title is a very prominent part of the work. That's why I'm spending a few minutes on it. It's a 47-word introduction to the psalm, and it is by far the longest of all the introductions in the books of Psalms. Now, I thought I would find this out, Andy, by looking this up. Like, what is the longest introduction, right? It's not there. What's the longest title? Like, you know... I looked and looked, and it, I looked for so long, I'm like, you know, I, I really should just look at all of the Psalms. And so I did. All 150 Psalms. And found out that this one is twice as long as any other introduction in the Psalms. Now in the title, as the scholars call it, it is clearly stated that the Psalm was written by David. And it's written at a very particular time in his life. It says this, it was written the day, everybody say the day. The day the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So this psalm was written. It was inspired, you know. Something happened in his life. So we know that this is the psalm on the day. And we know that on this certain day in the Bible, David sang a song. And guess what song it was? It was the song that we read in Psalm 18. So that's how we know, Benita. It's the right psalm with the right title. Now, it would have been nice if there had also been a note in the psalm telling us that most of the words of Psalm 18 were written first uh, near the end of the book of 2 Samuel. This psalm is an important psalm in, in Judaism uh, read by Jews uh, for thousands of years on the last day of Passover. And in addition to that, the uh, Jewish people, they, you know how we pray before we eat? You know what the Jewish people do? They pray after they eat. And guess what psalm they quote from every time? They quote from this same psalm, Psalm 18. And they quote from the very last verse in the psalm. Okay? So today for our Old Testament reading, we heard this chapter prior to David's written song. So we know what happened in the chapter preceding the song that he sang. And all you have to do is go and look in 2 Samuel, and you'll see this. You'll see everything that happened on the day that God delivered him from all of his enemies, and he delivered him from Saul. And we read about it. Wasn't that interesting when you were listening to the... How many of you kids were listening to the 24-finger giant? I mean, you know, that's pretty incredible. Uh, a giant with a, a, a staff as long as a weaver's beam. I don't even... I mean... We're not talking a little staff, we're talking a serious staff, a serious huge man. A man with a, the head of a spear that weighs a whole lot. And if it hits you, it would, it would do more than kill you, it would mangle you. So you hear about this, and you also hear about Saul 
and the Gibeonites in 2 Samuel 21. Now for me, it was interesting when you read what David wrote in Psalm 18, uh, and you go back to the time in his life, which is written down in Saul in 2 Samuel 22, that you have these same verses, uh, Steve. But guess what? They're changed 129 times. Now, for those of you that like to study and get into these kind of things, you know, imagine this, Derek. God's word is inspired, it's inerrant, right? It's infallible. And it was all written down in 2 Samuel 22. Exactly the way God wanted to be written in Psalm, or in, in 2 Samuel 22. But then God took it and put it in the Psalter and changed it 129 times. I mean, guys, if you're a Bible scholar, this probably could just completely blow your mind and keep you busy for the whole life. I can imagine someone writing a doctoral thesis on this. The 129 differences between 2 Samuel 22 the song that Jesus, that, that, that David sang, and Psalm 18, the song that Israel sang from it. 129 differences. It's amazing to me that both of these very long passages can be inspired, inerrant, with so many variations. It might be a better subject, obviously, for another day, but it's still worth noting. Now, for the subject matter of the introduction, it shows two main reasons for the song, which are certainly related. 2 Samuel 21 shows the very important day in the life of David. A day a lot of very bad things came to an end. 2 Samuel 22 gives us the first time that David sang the song and the context for it. From the time the youngest son of Jesse, a shepherd and an unlikely king, was chosen by God and anointed by the prophet Samuel, his life was completely turned upside down. You would think being made king could be a good thing but really for David uh, it kind of in in one sense destroyed his life and in another sense he made his life it's kind of like us right coming to know God has destroyed our lives but that's really what it's supposed to do right has we come to save our lives by becoming Christians or lose them lose them and David had a life he had he lived out there in Bethlehem and he was a shepherd and he was a good kid and he was doing, he was just kind of minding his own business out there, singing praises to God. And what does God do to him but put him in the limelight of the whole world and completely, uh, now he can't enjoy any of the things that he did. He's a totally different life. And yet, King David is a man known, he's famous, he's important, he did incredible exploits for God, right? So in one sense, his life was completely destroyed. In another sense, he has this incredible life he would have never had. He left the somewhat peaceful hills of the Judean countryside. And next, he was forced to run for his life. You know, this certainly doesn't meet the narrative that people do. People are like, you know, you're out there today and your life's a mess. And everything's misery and woe. But come and be happy in Jesus. Come and serve Him, and all of your problems are going to go away. If you're poor, you're going to be rich. If you're having difficulty, He's going to work it all out. It's going to be great for you today. Come and receive all the great blessings of coming to Christ. Folks, do you know that's not the gospel? That's the gospel people are selling. And what's funny today is when people come and they really find out what serving God is, they realize that they have been lied to. 
So God gave David this great victory as a young man over Goliath, the giant of Gath. The women of Israel began to sing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands, right? That would, could you imagine that being sung about you? Now, come on. Every guy wants to be thought of as tough a little bit, you know. I don't know. Saul, he's killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands, you know. This little boy, not even wearing armor. This little, this guy, he wasn't really a little boy, but kind of a young man. He's not wearing armor. He doesn't have a sword. All he's got is a little rock, the kind of thing that you use to scare off, you know, birds or to whatever. And he goes against the greatest giant of the Philistines, sinks a rock in his head, picks up a sword and cuts his head off. I bet you David was kind of like, yeah. Could you imagine David standing on the chest of Goliath that day going, yeah, you know. I think this was the last time David did that for a long time. Because after that, they're throwing javelins at him, and he's hiding, and he's running in caves. And he's like, why is everyone trying to kill me? And for years, he's running. He's like, oh, God. God, what's wrong? Oh, God, save me from my enemies. And that's pretty much what the book of Psalms is. It's David crying and going, what is going on? What is going on? God, you love me. Aren't you here? Aren't you listening to me? They're trying to kill me, God. Like a while ago, he saw it. David was going to be run through with the spear to catch him in traps. He get, was given no rest for years. And even after Saul's death by the hands of the Philistines at Mount Gilboa, Saul's ungodly ways still plagued him. I mean, you would think Saul's dead, but okay, that's over. No, not exactly. If you go back and read 2 Samuel 21, you'll see that two things happened right before he wrote this song. One is to do with Saul and the other with the Philistines. Everybody say, Saul and the Philistines. Now the Philistines were bad, and they were rough, but it seems to me that Saul was a bigger plague on David than the Philistines ever were. Right? So the first we read about in, first, uh, in the very first verse of 2 Samuel, and we'll call it Saul and the Gibeonites. Now, we certainly do not have time to go through all of this story. This story is a long and a big story, but I'm going to try to summarize it quickly but but it says in second uh, Samuel 21 verse 1 there was a famine in the days of David three years year after year and David inquired of the Lord now so so Saul is dead David is king and now it's not raining and there's a famine in the land and it's rough now you would think David is praying I'm, I'm the man after your heart I am your king now, Lord. Lord, would you tell me? And year after year, David prayed, and God did not answer his prayer. It's kind of like the other week we talked about what, what, what should we do? We should keep asking God questions, right? Why, God? Why, God? How long, God? How long, God? Right? Like we learned about in the How Long Psalm. And year after year, he inquired, but God didn't tell him. But for some reason, after this time period, God tells him. And the Lord answered and said, it's because of Saul. And for his bloody house, because he slew the Gibeonites. Could you imagine this, Andy? Your king, finally, after being chased all over the place by Saul, you've been a king for three years and you have a famine in your kingdom, and it's because of this guy that chased you around for year after year after year of your life. And so David is like, Saul? He's dead. His bones, his bones are in Jabez Gilead. They hung him. The Philistines hung him. The second we will call the giants of the Philistines. Okay, say it with me, the giants of the Philistines. 
Now I talked about this just a second ago, but you can read about it in the last verse, aces eight, the last eight verses of the chapter. So I'm not going to read it all for you, but you can look it up later. It's kind of fun. It, it is a kind of a fun read. With God's help, David and his men are able to kill four close relatives of Goliath. Now, when you read the scriptures, don't don't misunderstand that they're wrong. Okay, these are not the sons of Goliath. Okay. And the men in the story of Saul that happens here are not the sons of Saul. Okay? Sons in this term is a, a term that can be used for relatives or descendants. Okay, So when the Gibeonites, as we will see, ask for the sons of Saul, there aren't any sons of Saul. So these are what? These are the grandsons or other type relatives. And in the same time, you'll read, you'll read in the King James Version, it's, it's a little bit confusing, if you read some other versions, it's a little more clear. But the truth is, is these are not sons of the giant, but they are descendants of them, just like they are not sons of Saul. They're his descendants, okay? So David and his men are able to kill four close relatives of Goliath, still alive after as many as 40 years, who no doubt lived for the day that they could avenge the humiliating defeat of Goliath. He was their greatest champion ever. They no doubt actively sought the life of David, and David knew about this. So not only was David running for his life from King Saul, he was running for his life from who? From these Philistines. These guys, you, you know, you kill Goliath, and what are they going to do? They're going to make, I'm going to, I will find to the very last day of my life, and I will come, and I will hunt you down, and I will kill you. That's the kind of thing that these Philistines, no doubt, would say. In these four epic battles, David sees the end of his personal war with the Philistines, and he has emerged the victor. Now, let's talk about Saul and the Gibeonites, okay? Now, how many of you even know the story of the Gibeonites? My son was hoping it was the Gideonites, uh, but it's not. It was the Gibeonites with a B in the middle there. So I would say not many people know this story, but the ladies of the women's Bible study hopefully do because it's from the book of Joshua, okay? So the story of Gibeonites is a very ancient story. In fact, it was an ancient story at the time of David. And there's a lot of meat on this, on the bones of this psalm and this story. So you can read about it way back in the book of Joshua, the children of Israel. And at the time of David, this is a three or 400-year-old story. Can you believe this, Corinne? God is dealing with David about a promise made three or 400 years ago that Saul didn't keep, and that's why it's not raining in the life of David. This is all very complicating, but it tells me that God honors vows and that we should keep our vows. Amen? All right. After David's defeat of... After David's defeat. After Israel's defeat of Jericho and Ai, after they finally came into the Promised Land, they met the mysterious and crafty people called the Gibeonites. Now... In only a short time in Canaan, the word of how God was uh, commanded Israel to kill all of the inhabitants of the land. Somehow it spread out and everybody kind of knew this was uh, what they were going to do. They were going to defeat Jericho. They were going to defeat Ai. They were going to kill all the inhabitants of the land. And the Gibeonites lived close by. So the Gibeonites thought to themselves, how can we not get killed here? You know, we saw the Jordan River stop and they walked on dry land. We saw the walls of Jericho fall flat. The men of Ai are now dead, right? Who's next? It's going to be us. And so they said, let's do this. So they put on old clothes, 
And they get old moldy bread and they walk up and they walk up to uh, the, the, the children of Israel and they act like they've been on a journey from far, far, far away. And they're like, hey, we've heard about you guys and we know you're here to kill all the people of the land, but we're not from the land here. And we're here right now and we're really tired and, and we're running low on food and, and we, we don't want to cause you any problem, you know. Hey, what, why, don't, why don't you guys make a promise that you're not going to kill us? Let's, why don't we just have a little treaty here together? And Joshua does not inquire of the Lord. And guess what he does? He makes a league with them. Now, they only live three days walk away, but they're telling him they live, you know, like way, way, way far away. And so they make a promise with them. Now, it doesn't take long for Joshua and the children of Israel to realize that they have been hoodwinked. Okay? But you know, the Bible actually gives credit to people who are tricky. I don't know if you know this, and it's kind of a, maybe it bothers us more than it bothered them. But if you were tricky enough to not get killed by your enemies through some tricky way, kind of a, you know, kind of a good thing. It, when I was studying the fables of Myanmar, the, uh, the people there value deception and trickery above honesty. Do you guys know this? And a lot of the world does too. So these guys were able to create a scenario where they didn't get killed. And so the, the deal with the children of Israel is they had to keep their promise. So they promised before God not to kill them. But this went on for hundreds of years where the children of Israel knew they'd been tricked. And so they had this special relationship with them. They were made the woodcutters and the people that carried the water. And they weren't killed. And so they were allowed to live with the children of Israel. But just like Saul... And what we found out about him is he didn't really care that much about God's word. He doesn't care very much about obeying the letter of the law. And he doesn't care about keeping his promises. And so what does Saul do? He doesn't keep his promise. Now, it's not recorded in the scripture anywhere. The story of what he did to the Gibeonites, all it's recorded in is right here in the story of David's prayer to God. God's telling him that Saul had killed the Gibeonites, but there is no record of it in the Chronicles or in, uh, in, in the books of the kings. So we don't read about it. We don't read about it in anywhere. But Saul has killed the Gibeonites. And God is smiting Israel for this. And it must be made right. Israel had been in famine after all these years. And so what David did. And this is another study for another time. But. David did not go and ask God what to do to make it right. He went to the people who had been, their oath had been violated. They had broken their promise to the Gibeonites. And he asked them what they want. And what they want is really um, pretty sad. It's a sad story. If you were going to look at it all alone, uh, it's one of these gut-wrenching stories where these people, these, these people who had thought, you know, any worry about being related to Saul isn't going to, you know, David's not going to kill all of us. It's we're we're good, and they're living their lives. You know, and and here they come. We need seven of these relatives of Saul's, and when they take them, and they remove them, could you imagine them being removed from their homes and their families and their children and the crying and the oh, and they take them and they hang them. I know it's terrible, but it is what happens here. And what we learn here is that our sins don't always just affect us but they go on. 
Now, you know what? God is going to take us to heaven, but I'll tell you what, we leave a lot here on earth when we go. And our sins follow us. And our children can pay for them. And so that's a good enough reason to want to not do them. Amen? Amen. So these seven young men are killed. David takes the bones of them and he goes and gets the bones of Saul and Jonathan. And from the men of Jabesh Gilead and he buries them all together in the tomb of Saul's father Kish. And then God sent the rain. These young men had to die. And then the rain came. Folks, I don't understand this. And honestly, if I were going to list out things that God did that was good and things that he did that didn't seem good, this would just not seem good to me. How can this do anything? But guess what, guys? Do you know God decides what's good? We don't. I look at that and I go, why, why did God have to kill these young men? Why did, their, why did their mother have to lay out a blanket and just defend them from the birds? Why, God? Why? Why? Why, why couldn't you just be done with it? Why couldn't it just be forgiven? Why couldn't you just send rain? This is a hard thing, guys. So you read these stories, and if you just think that they're, they're made-up made stories, they don't bother you too much. But honestly, I'm reading that story, and I'm sick by it, honestly. But God sent rain after this to show that this time was over. He literally, in this one moment, buries the feud of David and Saul, and Saul's effect on the life of David. And all these tribulations from Saul on that day came to an end. That's what had made... It a good day for David. It was finally, finally over. Now in that same chapter, he deals with Saul and then he deals with the Philistines. And I believe that these things are put there together because what we're seeing is we're seeing that some horrible things in the life of David are coming to an end. The whole situation with all the years with Saul coming to an end. And not only that, but also his fight with the Philistines. Okay? From 2 Samuel 21.15, we see how God gives David victory over his enemies. Moreover, the Philistines had yet war again with Israel, it says in verse 15. David went down with his servants and he fought against the Philistines. And David waxed faint. Everybody say, David waxed faint. King James English means that David is fighting. And David is somehow, I don't know what weapons he's using, but he's fighting this giant of a man. And he's, he's holding his own, so he wasn't that bad off, right? But it wasn't like David of old. He didn't normally need any help. When David would go out to battle, David proved to be the kind of warrior you did not want to encounter. And here he is, he's encountering this, this giant, but the giant is starting to win. And David is starting to get weak. And he's starting to get tired. And David went down, it says, and his servants with him and they fought against the Philistines and he waxed faint and so a guy that it even names the guy he was fighting his name was Ish Bib Inam one of the sons of the giant he may have been his son he may have been his grandson most likely probably his grandson and it names how heavy the end of his sword the end of his sword weighs seven and a half pounds now or the end of his spear you know if you've ever thrown a spear have you ever thrown a javelin? Imagine one with a seven and a half pound end. Goliath weighed 15 pounds. So this guy was big, but he wasn't quite big as Goliath. He had taken out Goliath, but a guy who's probably not half his size is giving David some trouble. 
So David thought he was going to win, but now it looks like David's going to die and the giant is beating him down. But Abishai, the son of Zeruai, secured him and smote the Philistine and killed him. So one of David's men saves David's life in this battle and he kills the giant. And then the men of David's came to David and they, they made him swear, saying, Thou shalt go no more with us to battle, lest thou quench the light of Israel. And so they're like, David, you know, you're kind of getting old and you're kind of, you know, we really don't want to see this happen to you. Could you please not do this? Kind of like some of you have asked me not to climb trees and cut them down. Okay, so uh, lest I fall out of a tree and uh, somebody else has to preach on Sunday. Okay, so David was getting old and his strength was leaving him really is what's going on. And it came to pass in verse 18 that there was again the battle with the Philistines at Gob. And Sebekei the Hushathite slew Saph, which was born of the sons of the giant. And at Gob with the Philistines. And it goes on and it names each of these off. Uh, Elihanan, the son of Jeroagim, the Bethlehemite, slew the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, the staff of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was yet another battle in Gath where there was a man of great stature. And he had on every hand six fingers and six toes, 24 in number. And he was also born to the giant. And when he defiled, he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimea, the brother of David, slew him. So, so we go from David almost getting killed by one of these guys to, to David's men killing them and them asking David not to fight. But still, what's happening, Steve? The giants are dying. So David in his life killed one giant, but David's men killed four. And I don't know how many more. But David began to see that something was happening where his strength was waning. And his prominent place was being reduced. What does the Bible say? What did, what did uh, it say of John the Baptist? John the Baptist knew. He said, I must decrease that he may increase. And so David understood that he was a part of this transition. God had vanquished David's enemies through the hands of his men and not himself. Even in his own personal weakness, obviously not that weak since he was gauged, engaged in hand-to-hand -hand mortal combat, but still, nonetheless, he was weak. David's song in 2 Samuel does not begin like Psalm 18, but what we do have of the first words of this is a very nice addition because as we'll jump in here, and I'm not going to go verse by verse through the whole thing, but can you see these two things? Saul had come to an end. His battle with the Philistines had come to an end. And he, he wrote this song way back at then. But over time, they reflected and they said, you know, can we put a little summary at the beginning of the psalm? And here was the summary that's not included way back in 2 Samuel. It says, I love you. Oh, Lord, my strength. That's not included in there, but... The reason it's included in Psalm 18 because that's what the whole psalm is about. He comes to understand his love for God and he, keeps, he comes to understand that the source of all his strength is the Lord. David's love for God fills his song here in his life. Singing, praying, and even dancing before the Lord with little regard for what others think. Repenting and begging God not to take his Holy Spirit from him. And praising him for the broken bones of his discipline that he sent to him. He adds this verse in the phrase that he loves Jehovah, his strength. The words were no doubt added because that's what the whole psalm is about. 
He loved God and he had come to know so much better now that God was the source of his strength. You know, this is when we know it. You know, when, when we're flying high, when we're doing good, when we're the one who sees the open doors before us, sometimes we get confused and we think it's all about, it's all about us. And in this moment, David is realizing it was never about me. He had been strong enough to kill a lion and a bear. And he walked by faith out into the valley of Eli that Eli the day before he fought the giant of Gath. And now he was coming to understand God's greatness in his own weakness. This is what all men of God do. They come to understand this. We come to see God work in our hands. We marvel at Him and His work. It's truly a marvelous thing to be used by the Almighty. The gods of the heathen were strong and powerful, their subjects believe. But in their ancient writings, you will never read about how they loved him. Oh, how I love Ashtaroth. What a sweet God he is. You, you won't read that. Oh, what a tender God he is. No, you won't read about that. Oh, how with loving kindness he has, has, has Baal uh, sent his mercies to me every morning. No, you will not read anything like that. They were terrified of the thundering dark clouds of Baal, the storm god. They were terrified about the tornadoes of Woden that would go through and rip the trees from the ground because they believed they were going to be some cloud of destruction and they always sought to appease their anger. They went to great lengths to placate them. But where are the words of love for their god? They have none because they never even understood the concept. Verse 2, he said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer and my God, my strength in whom will I trust, my buckler, my horn of my salvation and my high tower. Could he add any more pronouns in this verse? He listed out. What's he saying? He's like, I'm naming it all. Everything that ever I thought that made me strong that I thought I had. I understand it's God. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and so shall I be saved from mine enemies. People of God, this is where we must all arrive. It's where God is taking us all on our journey through this world of pain and woe. David understood that although he could wield a sling, raise a sword, batter down, or even jump over the walls or, or run through them, at the end of his days now, he was beginning to understand that God alone was the source of his power. David was getting closer to God in the high towers of his palace behind the rock wall sitting on the solid rock of Mount Zion. He found that God was stronger yet. His citadel could be taken as he had taken it from the Jebusites. But unless the Lord kept the city, his city, the watchman of Israel, David, was just waking in vain. He couldn't save it. He couldn't keep it. The sorrows of death, it says in verse 4, compassed me, and the floods of ungodly men made me afraid. The sorrows of hell compassed me about, and the snares of death prevented me. But in my distress, what did I do? Did I pull up my own strength and decide to pull up my own bootstraps and to do it myself? No. In my time of distress, I called upon the Lord. I cried unto my God, and He heard my voice out of His temple, and my cry came before Him, even in His ears. He, he's seeing, like we saw last week, He's seeing the face of God. He's seeing the ear of God listening to Him. He's seeing the face of God watching Him. He's beholding God's face as He's living His life. 
His life had been filled with sorrows that came from his own sin. Sorrows from within the troubled house that he led as his son sowed the sexual sins that their father had. Murder and mutiny came into their home because David was a murderer. Amnon and Absalom were dead in shame because of his own sins. And David knew it. His own firstborn son of his wife Bathsheba had died because of his sins. And David knew that as well. Betrayal of his friends surrounded him on every side. But as we know, he cried unto the Lord. And the Lord heard him. The story of David is the story of his weakness and the strength of God. Folks, this should be very encouraging to you. You may not be feeling weak today. You may not know how weak you are, but you are. And why is it that we have to get to the place where we're just crushed into powder before we look up and see the greatness of God? Why can't we see it now? David knew that God had heard his prayers and his songs so much more and more. He wrote, he prayed, and he sang to the one who alone could hear him and know his heart. In this direction, is this the direction that your life is headed? Have you prayed and trusted God and have you seen Him come for you in your time of need? David did again and again and now he talks about these times. I think we often fail to see what God is doing because we're simply just not looking. David could see Him and so he sang about Him in these verses. And when he talks about what happens next, this is David looking at the ordinary. People ask me sometimes, they say, why is it that you think God's at work in all these things? Because I'm looking for Him, that's why. I expect Him to be there. I talk to Him, I pray to Him, I ask Him for His help, and I look for it to come. I think it's funny that yesterday, Luke was expecting it to come for me too. I'm like, I don't know how this thing's going to happen in my life. And, and Luke laughed. He's like, well, that's pretty funny. Steve was there, he was laughing. Well, I know how it'll happen. You'll be in the line at the drugstore and God will give you the answer through some person standing there. Someone will break down on the road and there your answer will be as you meet the guy that you change his tire. Mark, don't you know that's what God does in your life? I've seen it many times and I'm sitting there going, why do I forget? Why do I always forget? I worry about things and I carry them around as a burden as if somehow I'm lifting what I've never lifted a finger to hold. David saw it. I think we often fail to see it just because we're not looking. He starts quoting in verse 7, and I know we have 43 more verses to go. <laughs> Are you ready? Because I'll be quick. I'm just going to fly through them here. David said, The earth shook and trembled. The foundations and the hills moved and were shaken because God was mad. There went up smoke out of his nostrils, fire out of his mouth devoured, and coals were kindled by it. He bowed down the heavens and came down, and darkness was under his feet. He rode upon the cherub and he did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him. There were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. In the brightness that was before him, thick clouds passed. Hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered in the heavens and the highest gave his voice. And the stones and the coals of fire. Yea, he sent his arrows and scattered them and he shot out lightnings and discomforted them. And then came the floods of water that were seen. The foundations of the world were discovered at his rebuke. O oh Lord, the blast of thy breath in thy nostrils. He's like St. Francis, right? In the rustling grass, I see him pass. God speaks to me everywhere. O oh water, O oh fire, O oh wind. As he began to sing, he began to see God in everything that he began to look at. 
He delivered me from my strong enemy, from them that hated me, from them that were too strong for me. They prevented me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. David in the midst of his battles, and you can read about these, had seen the black storm clouds fill the air and, and lightning come forth from God. He had seen hailstones come down and smash the faces of his enemies and leave them laying on the ground. And instead of saying, oh, what luck for me. Oh, what happened in the good weather. He said, oh, it's God that sent the hailstone and smashed the face of mine enemy. Oh, look at God riding on the clouds as lightning began to strike and his enemies were terrified, probably of Baal and not of Jehovah. He saw them run and he said, oh, it's my God. That's sending the lightning. Do you know that land when it would rain, that flash floods would happen? And what David is describing are the flash floods that came in the midst of battles with the Philistines. Waters rushed through valleys on hard ground, and the waters would sweep away his enemies, and you would see it as God's hand picking his enemies off and throwing them against the rocks and drowning them. And even David himself got caught up in one of these flash floods. He said, but you know what God did? He caught me up in the waters, but he reached down and he pulled me out. You see, David is describing what went on in the great battles that he fought against his enemies. And instead of seeing the victory, oh, you should have seen that move I made. You should have seen that twirl I did. You should have seen that thrust that I made. And you should have seen how my arms burned. No, he's saying, look at God. Look what God did. Look at his lightning and his thunder and his fire and his floods and his dark power. This is what he's saying about God. He brought forth me into a large place and he delivered me because he delighted in me. He saw his salvation from the flood. He saw salvation in the battle as love from God. God loves me. David, like John the beloved, the disciple whom Jesus loved, looked back on his life and he could see the grand love of God for him. Can you see his hand in your life? Has he been there for you again and again, showing his love for you? Have you even taken the time to see it? The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, as he recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. If you think that David is being self-righteous here, David is only and simply declaring that what I did is I loved God's word. I wanted to obey his word. I tried my best to follow it. He knew his own frailties and his failures. He confessed his sins. But he believed that God was only, that the kindness that came from God was because he was just obeying his word and he was following him. Therefore the Lord recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With merciful thou with the merciful thou will show thyself mercy. Merciful and with the upright thou will show thyself upright. With the pure thou will show thyself pure, and with the forward thou shalt show thyself forward. He was saying that God is just. He's watching what we do. He cares about what you say. He cares about how you treat other people. He's declaring the goodness of God that was uh, looking at the world with justice. Thou will save the afflicted people, will bring down the high looks. For thou will light my candle, the Lord God will enlighten my darkness. For by thee I have run through a troop, and by my God I have leaped over a wall. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all those who trust in Him. David knew that when he obeyed God's word, when he chose the righteous path, that God had been just and faithful to reward him then as he was to discipline him and judge him when he sinned. God had been good to David better than he could have prayed for. God is so much better to us, as Sam 
always says every time I ask him, how you doing? Sam always says, better than I deserve. And now we come to our text. Verses 31 through 35, where David sums up the deep cries of credit and gratitude he owes to God. He speaks to those hearing his song. He's singing his song and he's like, you can see how I feel of God, but how about you? I'm lifting up the goodness of God, but do you see it? Because really, it's really what should happen in our hearts. We see the goodness of God for ourselves and what we should do next is look at others and say, can you see it? Do you know it? Have you, have you noticed this in your life? And that's what he does. David speaks to the listener of the song here in verse 31. And he says, For who is God, save the Lord? Who is a rock, save our God? All those who say they are gods are dumb idols. They have no ears to hear, no hands to touch, no power to save. Who is God but the Lord of heaven? There's none like Him. None that even approach His greatness. It is God that girdles me with strength and makes my way perfect. God made me strong and brought me to this understanding and He will do this for you. This is what David is saying. He makes my feet like hinds feet and He sets me on high places. God gave Him the power to run like a deer, to scale over rocks like a mountain goat. He took Him to heights that He could have never ascended to. This is not just hyperbole. David had literally ran for his life, I guarantee you, in battles. He had scurried up the sides of hills trying to get away from his enemies to find a better place. And he's saying, every time I jumped up a rock, every time I got out of the way, every time I climbed up to a place that I never thought I could climb to, it was God who was taking me there. He teached my hands to war so that the bow of steel is broken in my arms. He had felt uh, other the, the, the weapons of enemies in his hand and he would even broken them in his hand. And he was recognizing God in the strength of the very muscles on his arms. Thou hast given me the shield of thy salvation and with thy right hand is holding me up and thy gentleness, thy gentleness hath made me great. He realized that as harsh as he was on David's enemies that God was not harsh with him. He was gentle. Thou hast enlarged my steps under me that my feet did not slip. I have pursued mine enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn again till they were consumed. I have wounded them that were not able to rise, and they are fallen under my feet. For thou hast girded me with strength unto battle. Thou hast subdued under me those that rose up against me. You read this, and for you it sounds like a poem, but I'm telling you, David was a man. I mean, if you had ever been in mortal combat one time against another man with a sword, just one, you could understand what he's talking about. He was in battle after battle after battle. I would think every time you made it through one battle without being killed, I think you would sit on the other side of that battle and go, how did I not die? There were arrows flying everywhere. There were spears flying everywhere. There were men slinging swords and trying to kill me. But yet, here I am. I'm standing here before God. And he's saying, it was God that brought my enemies low. It was not me. Thou hast given me the necks of mine enemies that I might destroy them that hate me. They cried, but there was none to save them. Even to the Lord. Even they even cried finally to Jehovah as they were being killed, but you did not answer them. Then did I beat them small as the dust before the wind, and I cast them out as the dirt in the streets. David is now swelling up in it. He's like, I didn't just beat them. I crushed them. I didn't just crush them. I crushed them to powder. That's what David's saying. You might go, Mark, you're getting a little crazy up there. I'm like, yeah, that's what the psalm is doing. It's getting crazy. I beat them down. I stood on their necks. I destroyed them. I cut them in pieces and I ground them to powder. And oh God, that's what you did. 
through me. Why? That's what David did. God has allowed me to grind my enemies into dust beneath my feet and my foot was upon their neck. He will raise me up to be the Lord even over the heathens. Here David prophetically speaks of Christ within his loins. He whose throne will be established by God and stand forever. You know, you think about these enemies and you think about these old ancient stories and you forget that you are an army standing before the Lord and that you are a member of it and that you hold in your hand the sword of the Spirit, that you have the shield of faith and you have on the helmet of salvation and that we are engaged in a spiritual warfare right now. And we go, oh, that was good in that time. They fought like that. Folks, you're fighting like that right now. You may not know it and you may not see it. You may be as blind as the servant of the prophet was who God opened his eyes. And you may not see what is going on all around you. But I'm telling you right now that we are trampling down our enemies under our feet. We are crushing to powder beneath us in all of our weakness and our frailty. I mean, we can, I, I'm wondering if anyone's even going to show up to church each week. I'm wondering if I'm even going to make it here myself. And God's like, yeah, that's how I like it. So that no flesh will glory in my presence. I've taken the weak things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. You can't even survive hardly a, a backache or a headache or a, a, a hangnail on your toe. But look what I'm going to do for you. You're going to destroy principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness in this world. The spiritual wickedness in high places is going to tremble against you. And you go, how can it possibly be? And I say, God says it's happening. I don't have to see it to believe it. I know it's happening. Now Christianity stands tall above the religions of the world where there is barely a remembrance of Baal or Ashtaroth or even the gods of the Romans. They are silly fables in our minds and no one with a strand of reason believes their foolish stories now. But who does not know about Jesus Christ? Amen? Christianity is the predominant religion in the entire world. Islam is a Christian heresy. So it could even be put underneath it. And it's just a picture and the, the scaffolding for where Christianity is built. The greatest religions of the world are standing on the word of God. And yes, there are, the devil is deceiving many and a lot of ungodliness is going on. But I'm telling you, Christ will continue to ride forth and conquer. And we are riding with him. The blood flowing to the bridles of our horses. We will ride until all our enemies have been subdued. Sin, disease, and sickness. Satan himself. One day, the final day of the consummation. All things. Death itself will be swallowed up. Don't believe their words about doubt. Christ has come and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. Verse 43, Thou hast delivered me from the strivings of the people. Thou hast made me the head of the heathen of the people whom I have not known and they shall serve me. Can you hear what he's saying? He's saying, Ask of me and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. As soon as they hear me, they shall obey me. The strangers shall submit themselves to me. The strangers shall fade away and be afraid out of their close places. The Lord liveth. Blessed be the rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. Can you hear it? How many of you are hearing the, the, the optimistic uh, millennial reign of Christ here? The Lord liveth. Blessed be the rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. Praise the Lord. Can you hear David praising the Lord? It seems to me like he's getting a little loud here in this song. The Lord liveth. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. 
It is the God that avenges me that subdues the people under me. He says in verse 47, He delivereth me from mine enemies. Yea, He lifteth me up above those that rise up against me. Thou hast delivered me from the violent man. Like a preacher in cadence, you can hear David say, It is God that avengeth me. It is God that subdueth the people under me. It is God that delivers my enemies. It is God that raises me up. Raise them up, Lord. And that's what David is saying here in the psalm. Therefore I will give thanks to the Lord among the heathen and sing praises to thy name. Great deliverance giveth he to his king and he showeth mercy to his anointed, to David and to his seed evermore. David made it real personal. He put his name right in the psalm. He said, I'm not just talking about kings. I'm talking about me. In the final words of his psalm, he begins to speak of himself in the third person. God grants deliverance to his king. He shows mercy to his anointed and to his seed forevermore. May this be our prayer today, people of God, to see that we are his people, that we are his anointed, and that we are his children evermore. And he is conquering this world, and he has came, come to save it, and he's going to save it. Amen. Amen. The Lord is our light and our salvation. Whom shall we? fear the lord is the strength of our life of whom shall we be afraid it is they who should tremble and not us thanks be to the lord amen that's what psalm 18 is saying Woo! amen let us pray heavenly father we thank you for the words of psalm 18 we thank you for the prayer that david prayed when you subdued the philistines in your strength when you ended Saul's effect and harassment of David throughout his life. And Lord God, you will be there the day that you bring all the enemies under our feet. Lord, may we lift up our voices today. May we be thankful that you've invited us into your presence today. And may we love your word and may we look for you at work in the world. May we look for you delivering and conquering our enemies. Lord, may we refuse the doubt and fear that people try to put into our ears that it's just not going to get better and, and it's just going to not work out and, and we just all need to just buckle in and, 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 and try to survive. Oh no! Oh God, let us be warriors as David was and fight for us as you fought for him. In Christ's name we pray and God's people said, Amen. Amen. Hello, this is Pastor Mark Robinette of Foundation Church. Thank you for taking the opportunity to listen to our audio sermons. We would love to hear from you if you have any comments, questions, or just to let us know how they served you. Go to our website, www.foundationfellowshipchurch.org, and send us a note. Thank you, and it's a pleasure to serve you.